you the greeting of our president, who was scheduled to be with you this morning, but has been called away to other ministry duties that kind of came up last minute. And so I'll take the great honor and pleasure of standing in as if, because I guess everybody else is gone. You realize what's going on, don't you, right now? The faculty, staff, and administration are all on their way, or at least supposed to be on their way, to a field trip, on a field trip, to see the Word of Grace facility out here in uh, Valencia. So that means it's just you guys and me. Now you realize that holds some very significant possibilities. In fact, maybe Dewey's in the room. I think it may be you guys, me, and Dewey. Now that holds even more possibilities. Dewey and I were thinking what we might do is dismiss chapel immediately and barricade the entire campus to show our position of utter strength in this whole scenario. And then in order for all those people to get back onto campus and to resume their ministries, they'd have to pay or be willing to give all of you free tuition for next year. How's that sound? Maybe. The only, the only additional demand we would put on them is that it's uh, a raise in, in Dewey's salary as well. That'd be important too. I, think. I know you'd support that. Well, I hope you had a great spring break. Um, I, I sort of did. And many of you maybe didn't have as great a spring break as you were hoping for. You probably had extremely high expectations for it. Maybe you went on vacation. Maybe you went home and found that it wasn't all that it, you'd hoped it would be. I want to speak to you this morning a little bit as you come back from spring break. I hope you're rested. The reality is you may not be rested. And now that you've gotten back in the saddle a little bit, and you've looked at your assignment sheets, the midterms and the papers and the finals are quickly coming. I sat with one student uh, last Friday, Good Friday. He got back a little early because he had a huge 50-page paper he had to have turned in by uh, Tuesday morning. And he was under significant stress and anxiety. And not only did he have that one paper, he realized that he had the whole bunch of other classes that he had fallen behind in. Now, I don't imagine very many of you fall into that category this morning. You probably all like way down the road. You're way in front of all your responsibilities and you're going to glide your way through the rest of this semester. As you finish the semester, of course, you're concerned about landing a summer job and making some money so you can pay your debt and come back. But beyond all that, you're now going to have to manage your roommate, your social life, try to get a date somewhere between now and the spring formal, whatever that thing is. You got to deal with your parents and all of those responsibilities you have to handle with absolutely no money in the bank. Amen. Amen. Now, if you're wondering, am I really dealing with stress in my life? Let me give you a few symptoms that came off an article I read about stress in the life of a college student. If you find yourself suffering from a racing mind, you can't seem to slow down. You're dealing with forgetfulness mood swings, insomnia, impatience, you always seem rushed and you're typically very tired. You say, that's not a description of me under stress, that's a description of me since I came to college. Right? That's who I am, you just described me. All you need now is my name and my birth date and you've got me. But if any of those things are working in your life, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 and let's examine some helpful principles from the Word of God dealing with anxiety. And many of you know that I'm under anxiety and stress. Uh, I announced to you several months ago that my family and I were going to be seeking a full-time senior pastorate. And uh, we have been under all kinds of stress with that. I mean, I, I believe that's what I'm supposed to do. It was the right decision. I'm preparing all my life so I could go into the full-time ministry. And yet, as I approach that transition in my life, a lot of these symptoms apply to me. 
I do have a racing mind. I can't slow it down. I've locked my keys in my car twice in one week. And I've never done that before in my life. I asked my wife, I'm very moody. I'm very impatient. And there's just this general sense of tiredness, even though maybe I didn't stay up late. And I guess the emotional stress kind of wears you out even more than physical exercise would. So I speak to you not as an expert on the topic of anxiety or stress, but as a fellow learner this morning. I've got my share of it. And let's examine together. Philippians chapter 4, we'll read the first, uh, well, actually verses 4 through 9. You follow along. Well, in Dewey's honor, because he's the only faculty guy on campus, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. How's that? Verse 4. I always wanted to do that, you know, and be like Dewey. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you. Let's pray and then you can take your seat. Father, as we come into the chapel this morning and are led in such wonderful worship by the group of students who so faithfully serve you in that capacity, every chapel, we thank you for the words that have been up on the screen and for the melodies that go with them as they give expression to the great joy that fills our heart in knowing you. Thank you that we can come back after a spring break and enjoy the fellowship and the camaraderie and the, just the excitement of being a part of what you're doing at the Master's College. Father, as we look at the text before us this morning, and as it touches a sensitive place in all of our lives, as at different times we have our season of stress, it's my prayer that you would minister to these collegians in a powerful way. Give them help, give them strength, give them wisdom, give them direction as they finish up this spring semester. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Anxiety. Let me give you a basic definition. Anxiety is a brooding fear over some future contingency. A brooding fear over some future contingency. There's an event out there in your life. It's future yet, and you're not sure if it's going to be good for you or bad for you. You're not sure if it's going to go the way you want it or if it's going to go the completely wrong way and destroy your life from your perspective. Anxiety is a fear or a tension or a stress over that outcome that is yet future. Am I going to go option A, which is great, or option B, which is lousy and I wish I were dead? You know, that kind of a feeling inside your heart. Now, as you look at the passage in front of you, if you were reading it in the Greek, something would jump out at you almost as if in neon sign, you know, just kind of flashing at you. And it's the verbs in this passage. There are six imperatival verbs, and an imperative verb in the Greek is written a certain way, and so it becomes very obvious as you read it. Let me show you them. There's one almost in every verse. Verse 4 the, the imperative verb is rejoice. An imperative verb, by the way, is a command. It's a special way that they would write it in the Greek language, which would issue a, a command. Not a suggestion, not a good idea, not a helpful hint. It's like military marching orders. This is a command. 
So here they are, verse 4, rejoice. Then in verse 5, let be known. is actually the verb there, and it's coupled with the idea of a forbearing spirit. So the command is to let your forbearing spirit be known. In verse 6, the word anxious, and it's coupled with nothing, be anxious for nothing. That's another command. And then at the end of verse 6, you see it there at the end, your requests, the verb is be made known. Let your requests be made known. The fifth one in verse 8, the very end of the verse, let your mind dwell. Let your mind dwell on these things. And the last one in verse 9, practice, practice these things. These are six commands that this passage outlines. And I think they develop for us six principles that we should be looking to apply in our lives as we feel stress. The first one, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. What does that mean? What in the world does it mean to rejoice always? And I think we've heard some good intending people tell us that this, if you are right with the Lord, if you are involved in your daily Bible study and you're doing your prayer life and you're up with your homework and you've been nice to your parents, if you're right with the Lord, you will experience a level of rejoicing which nobody else knows, such that when you don't experience that rejoicing, it's just that somehow you're not right with the Lord, so go back and do some more Bible study, some more prayer, and some more obedience until you get right with Him again, and then suddenly you're rejoicing again. And they describe the Christian life as if it were one emotional mountaintop experience after the next, if you can just stay right with God. Well, that works sometimes for a little while. And then your mom or dad dies. Or then your boyfriend breaks up with you. Or then you realize that the financial aid that was supposed to come through hasn't come through and you're looking for $2,500 between now and May 11th. And you find that the last emotion in your mind and heart at this point is joy. What you're feeling is hurt, angry, and often very, very confused. If we were going to describe your, our emotional status at that point, it's angry and confused and hurt. And oftentimes the anger is reflected at the guy who controls it all, namely our great God. The last emotion which would describe us would be joy. And I think right there we are at a very important point in our Christianity. Because we know this verse. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're seeing the hurt and we're seeing the anger and we're feeling the confusion. And yet in our mind, the Spirit of God is prompting us to be rejoicing always. And it's here that we come to a very important crossroad in our Christianities. And to handle this one wrong is to lead you down the wrong path. Here's what typically happens wrong. You say to yourself, I feel lousy, I'm angry, I'm confused, I'm hurt, I feel let down, but I'm supposed to rejoice. And so in order to try to obey the scriptures and get to the place of rejoicing, we begin to deny how we really feel. We say it isn't so. I really don't feel that way. It's really not that bad. It really doesn't matter. It'll work out somehow. I feel happy. We begin to pretend with ourselves. We begin to tell ourselves that's how we feel when we don't feel that way. My friends, to make that move, is to begin to walk down a path towards a very superficial Christianity, a very weak, impoverished relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is big enough and strong enough and powerful enough and involved enough in your life not to make you deny that stuff and pretend you're happy, but to take a hold of it, embrace it, and move through it through his power until you come out the other side with a real joy. 
a true Christian joy, and a joy which produces strength of character and might in the inner man that allows you to live an effective, dynamic Christian life. You say, how? You say, show me. Turn to the book of Habakkuk. It's in the crispy portion of your Old Testament, the part you rarely get to. Goes Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and then the Italian prophet Malachi. Habakkuk. You've hardly ever looked at the book, except maybe in a minor prophets class. But go to the end of the book, chapter 3, and let's look at this prophet of God who is doing what he's commanded to do in Philippians 4, and I know that was written way later, but he's got the truth in his life. He's rejoicing in the Lord. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 18, says this, Yet I will exalt. Now, the word exalt is just a stronger word for rejoice. I will greatly rejoice, where? In the Lord. What did Philippians 4 say? Rejoice always, where? In the Lord. Rejoice in your relationship with the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my what? Strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet, and he makes me walk on high places. It's interesting in verse 19, he says, the Lord God is my strength. He didn't say my anesthetic. He didn't say the Lord God is to me like a good beer or a good joint or a good movie or a distracting event which so captivates my mind that I don't even have to think about the harsh realities of my life. He didn't say the Lord was a good anesthetic. He said, God is my strength. God has the strength and the resources to make me go through the stuff I've got to go through so that I can know the kind of joy that is available truly to the Christian. You say, how do you get there? Go back to chapter 1. Habakkuk is a very confused prophet in chapter 1, and he is looking at his native Judah. And Judah is full of violence and sin and corruption. Men are flagrantly disobeying the law of God and distorting justice. And there seems to be no recompense. They're getting away with it. It's going on and on and on. And as a prophet of God, he's incensed by this reality. And he's confused. And he cries out to his God in verse 2. He says, how long, O Lord, will I call for help? Where in the world have you been? What is going on? Look at verse 4, part B, kind of the second part. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. He's saying, wait a minute, I don't understand. You're a holy and a righteous God, and we're the people of God. We're the chosen race. And in my country and in my nation that you have made me a prophet to, it's full of corruption and violence and sin, and there's no response from you. You're silent to us. And it just goes on unpunished. How long, O oh Lord? He's confused. His circumstances are not good. His emotions are not characteristic at this point of joy confusion and God answers look at verse 6 for behold I am raising up the Chaldeans now that's another word for the Babylonians and the Chaldeans are the Babylonians same deal and you're talking here about Nebuchadnezzar 605 BC when they deported Daniel and his friends God says it's not going to go on this way forever these two tribes in the south I'm going to absolutely destroy them with Nebuchadnezzar out of which the remnant went to Babylon and eventually returned. Look at verse 11. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. He's describing Nebuchadnezzar's incredible military might. Well, that really didn't help him at all. That didn't help Habakkuk's 
problem one bit at all. He says, now for a long time we've had injustice unpunished, but now you're going to bring the Chaldeans to discipline us. He says, how in that can be? Look, look at verse uh, 13. He asks another question of God. Why dost thou look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why art thou silent when the wicked, namely the Chaldeans, swallow up those more righteous than they? This is even more confusing and upsetting to Habakkuk. It's bad enough that you've let our sin go unpunished, but now you're telling me you're bringing a group of people that are more wicked than we are, and you're going to let them destroy us. And it, he questions the holiness of God. Look at verse 12. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? Verse 13, thine eyes are too pure to approve evil, and thou canst look on wickedness with favor. You know what he's doing? He's very subtly reminding God that he's supposed to be a holy, righteous God who can't look on evil, and it's got to be wrong to bring in these sinful, wicked Babylonians to wipe out yet sinful Judah. man is confused, and the man is questioning his God. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute, beyond just the, the Bible part. I mean, what, what the Bible would give you insight into the life of Habakkuk. You know what that means, don't you? When the Babylonians come into his life, it's as if we were in Kuwait and we just got invaded. The Babylonians came and they destroyed his entire way of life, his entire culture. They came and killed many of his family members and his friends and would have wiped out his society as he knew it. This is a catastrophic future contingency in this man's life. There is a foreign army and it's coming to town and it's going to obliterate us. And it's going to wipe out my history, my country, my culture, my family. And most importantly, I think to this man, it's going to make me a personal failure. What was the job of the prophet? The prophet was sent by God to proclaim the warnings of God so that the people could repent. So that if they'd repent, then who wouldn't come and destroy him? The enemy. What God is saying is, I've sent you to these people and you proclaimed your message and they haven't repented and they're wicked and they need to be judged and in essence, you're done. The time for them to come to repentance is over and he just got walking papers. Nothing could be more all-encompassing as far as a future contingency than what he is living at this particular time in his life. And it causes him to cry out with confusion and, and serious question about the character of God. What are you doing? Who are you? Are you say you are who you say you are? Or are you who you say you are? And then God responds. Chapter 2, verse 4. One of the most powerful responses in all of Scripture. Look what he says. But the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. And so ended all of Habakkuk's questions. The rest of the book is Habakkuk getting his heart and mind in line with the will of God until finally we come and turn back, please, to chapter 3, where he comes to the place that he can say, I greatly, I greatly rejoice in the Lord God. Look at verse 17. He hasn't forgotten his circumstances. He isn't denying his circumstances. He isn't asking God to take his circumstances away. Look. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, that's it, we're wiped out. That's, a, that's the destruction of an agrarian community going down the uh, drain. Then verse 18, yet 
I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. What's the principle? When you and I come up against significant future contingencies that impact us in such a way that we begin to see the symptoms of stress and anxiety described at the beginning of the hour. God does not want you to run into your room and have a Bible study and have a prayer time and try to obey so that he can somehow anesthetize you to the reality of the hardship of that future contingency. That is not what your God is in your life to do. You are to go into your room and have your quiet time and spend your time in prayer and get your life obedient and put on your boots and your helmet and go suffer through the reality of that future contingency, knowing that you have a sovereign God, not fully understanding all that he is doing and grabbing onto him by faith and saying, God, wherever you are taking me, I am happy to go. Lead me. Show me. Direct me. Nowhere in Scripture... Does the idea of rejoicing in the Lord mean that God produces an anesthetic in your life to the death of your father, the death of your mother, the lack of finances, bad grades, uh, a broken relationship, or any other significant reality in your life? Always in Scripture, God is seen as the one who can give you the strength and build in you the character to go through it with purpose and meaning to the glory of God. Allow the hardship of your circumstances, in other words, to drive you to faith in God that you hang on to him in such a way that he gives you the strength to move with purpose in the midst of your hardship. That's Christianity. That's principle number one. Let's go back to Philippians chapter four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Number two is found in verse five. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, we don't typically use the word forbearing spirit in our day-to-day -day conversation. It would be rare for us to walk up and say, my, you evidenced a marvelously forbearing spirit there. I do appreciate that in you. What does it mean? Forbearing spirit has to do with your rights. Your rights as a Christian, your rights as an individual, your rights as a family member, your rights as a student of this college, your rights as an American. In every category, the forbearing spirit has to do with your rights. And here is its definition. A forbearing spirit is willing to either stand for your rights or give your rights up, depending upon which choice will advance the kingdom of God the most. A forbearing spirit is an attitude, a disposition, a perspective in life that chooses to either stand for the individual rights, the school right, the right of America, or give those rights up, either one. Not based upon how it impacts me personally, but based upon whether or not it will advance the kingdom of God. Let me give you an illustration. Let's go to Acts chapter 16. It's an amazing scenario in the life of the Apostle Paul he had just received the uh, Macedonian vision, which called him over to Europe, and the gospel goes to Europe for the very first time, and he ends up in the city of Philippi. It's interesting that he ends up in the city of Philippi, and we're studying his words to the Philippians. This experience happened to him while he was at Philippi. You remember what happened? He saw Lydia, the seller of purple fabrics, there in verse 14, and the Lord opened her heart, and she responded to the things spoken by Paul and got saved. 
She was baptized. And then this slave girl in verse 16 started following Paul and Silas everywhere they went. And she started crying out in verse 17, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And though her message was true, apparently something about it irritated Paul. So in verse 18, <clears throat> greatly annoyed, he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. Sometimes I wish I could do that to one of my daughters. Come out. No, just kidding. Verse 19. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, because the demon had been cast out, apparently she had some ability to foretell the future, or the demon would make her say something, and then the demon would make that future event happen. Somehow it had to do with her ability to do that. When they saw their profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. They went on then, verse 22, the crowd rose up together against them. The chief magistrates tore the robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, <clears throat> commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now this isn't as graphically presented by Dr. Luke as it could have been. When you are beaten with rods, it's a series of sticks that are held together at the base by some twine and they begin to beat on your back until your back begins to open up and it's now flesh kind of torn. And then to be thrown into stocks, it's not our typical picture, you know, of the pilgrims or whatever, you know, locked in to the stocks. Stocks were a little device, very effective torture device designed to separate your legs. And you'd sit on the ground and they'd stick your legs apart and it wouldn't let your legs move and your knees couldn't move and your and your uh, hips couldn't move. And you ever sit in this car for a long time, I guess your body excretes a certain chemical, and if you can't move, it becomes very painful. And they would just hold them there, and occasionally they'd only just separate them a little more to increase the pain. You'll notice in verse 24, he's been thrown into an inner prison. Now, we don't know exactly which prison this would be in Philippi, but if it's like most others, it would have been nothing more than a deep, dark, dungy cave. Just a dark cave. It might have even been on the side of a cliff that would have led into the ocean, and they would sometimes clean the cave by washing the human excrement and the dead human right on out the window or the, the hole in the cave and down over the cliffs and into the ocean. At any rate, what you can picture here is a man who has been beaten, whose back is probably filleted and, and ble bleeding. His feet are in stocks, and he's thrown into a dark inner cave, and he, like most humans, has to relieve himself and... And so the flies and the maggots and the filth is moving from the floor to his back and to the floor and to his back. It's a gross picture of mistreatment and injustice. What's he doing? Verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Isn't it interesting to you now, think back to point one, rejoice in the Lord always, that the description of his suffering directly precedes verse 25, which says that he was praising God. He is not praising God as if his circumstances don't exist. This man in the strength and the power of his faith and his character towards God is fully aware of his circumstances. But through them, God is giving him strength to embrace him by faith and praise his name. You say, what in the world does this have to do with a forbearing spirit? Well, look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. You see there, from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, it's a what? It's a Roman colony. Paul, as you know, was a Roman citizen. Did you know there were two laws that could never be violated with respect to a Roman citizen? 
A Roman citizen could never be thrown into jail without a proper Roman trial. No such trial was given him. He was dragged by the magistrates into the streets. A riot rose up. They tore off his robes. They beat him. They locked him in stocks and they threw him in the inner prison and he never got his trial. The second law that could never be broken with respect to a Roman citizen is he could never be beaten. Never. Two of his rights absolutely violated and he didn't say a word. He didn't utter a word. All he had to do from the moment those magistrates laid their first hand on him was say, I am a Roman citizen and that whole process stops on the dime. And they may have held him and then given him a trial and such, but they could not have done what they did. And so you're saying, okay, so what is the forbearing spirit? Milk toast Christianity, every time one of my rights gets violated, I just roll over and play dead and let anybody do anything I'm supposed to do to me? Have I no rights? Is there no place for me to stand up? Well, I think there is. Remember what happened? He was in prison and God bought an, a localized earthquake and the Roman jailer was going to kill himself because he knew that if he lost one of his prisoners, his superior would kill him anyway. And so he's got the knife to wherever his part of his body. And Paul says, wait, don't do that. We're all here. Everything's fine. And the Roman jailer comes to Christ and his whole household and they're all baptized. Verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You and your household. Verse 33, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. The Philippian jailer came to Christ. But by this time, the city magistrates are so upset with this man because now he's cast out a demon which has taken away some profit. Now there's an earthquake because of him and all they want him is to get out of their city. Look at verse 36. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now therefore come and peace. Leave the city. Verse 37. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial. Men who, now for the first time he reveals it, men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison and now they are sending us away secretly? Guess again. No, indeed. Let them come themselves and bring us out. Look at verse 38. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. They knew they were in deep, deep trouble. And they came and appealed to them, now in a position of humility. And when they brought them out, they kept begging them, please leave the city. And he didn't. He didn't leave the city. Verse 40. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, the other people who had come to Christ since he'd come there, they encouraged them and then they departed. Isn't that amazing? He first comes to Philippi. He casts the demon out of the lady. They take a hold of him. They beat him. They throw him in stocks. They put him in the inner prison. And all he had to say is, I'm a Roman. All he had to do was stand up for his rights. Those were his rights. But he didn't. Now, I don't know why he didn't. I don't know what was going on between he and the Holy Spirit, but as the narrative develops, we can see that because he went into prison, he got to share Christ with the Philippian jailer, and the guy comes to know the Lord. And now at the proper time, he reveals that he's a Roman citizen, and he starts demanding his rights, saying, let me out of this prison, and let me out right now, and you want me to leave? I'm not going to leave, because I'm going to go encourage Lydia, and I'm going to go encourage the other brethren, and when I'm ready, then I'll leave. And you say, man, the guy's schizophrenic. One instance, he's getting beaten for not sharing his own rights. And the next instance, he demands them for all he's worth. What's the principle? Your rights are not your own. My rights are not my own. 
Your rights are a stewardship from God, whether they be your rights in this school, your rights in the kingdom of God, your rights as an American citizen, your rights as a family member. Your rights are not your own. They're God's and you just steward them. And you are to use them for his glory and for his purpose. And if on occasion you need to give them up and suffer ill treatment because it advances the kingdom of God, do it. And on other occasion, if you must stand for your rights and say, I'm not budging, I'm standing right here, not because it makes you money or it gives you a better position or you get what you want, you stand for your rights because you believe by standing for them, God is honored in that situation. It's a principle that you have to apply genuinely and sensitively with the Holy Spirit because there is not always a right or wrong answer. And it leaves you really depending upon God, saying, God, should I stand for my rights or give my rights up? Which would be the most godly? Which would advance the kingdom of God? But that is the question to be asked. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men, for the Lord is near. Principle number three. Let's go back to Philippians 4. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing. And that's kind of what this whole passage is all about. So let's move on to the next principle. He gives us some help with how to do that. But, verse 6, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. When I first read this passage, I thought, what in the world? Why four words on the same topic? You ever think of that? When you read this passage? Verse 6, prayer supplication, thanksgiving, and request. Those are just four <clears throat> different words about the exact same thing. Why didn't he just say, be anxious for nothing but in everything pray? Why the redundancy? Well, my curiosity was raised, so I began to study these words. And let me just briefly give you a little definition. I think you'll find there's some different meanings behind these words, and it communicates something to us about how to handle or how to pray. First one, prayer. Prayer is just the basic, average, generic word in the New Testament for opening communication with God. It's just the basic workhorse word for talking to God. Pray. Open lines of communication. So be anxious for nothing but, one, open your lines of communication with your Heavenly Father. The second word, supplication. And I wish we had time to develop this both in the New and the Old Testament. But the word supplication is used almost exclusively to describe the humble, dependent cry of the heart. This is that kind of prayer that comes from inside your heart when you know you're completely over your head, you're out of control, you're in deep trouble, and you're just talking to God saying, help, man, I need help. Supplication. The humble cry of a dependent heart. Next word, thanksgiving. Well, to thank God is to thank God, but in the context, I would suggest to you that what you're thanking Him for is for the outcome of the contingency in advance. God, I don't know if my life is going to work out in this particular area, if, if this particular guy that I really would love to marry, and we're kind of in this intermediate dating stage, and it's kind of really rocky right now, and it seems to mean the world to me, and there's a contingency here. This could go down and we're done, or this could go up and we'll eventually end up being married. And Those are legitimate feelings, and many of you have those kinds of feelings about each other or about different situations, and there's nothing wrong with those feelings. Welcome to the human race. 
But what God is saying is when the midst of that and your mind is racing and you can't sleep and you don't seem to be able to manage your time and all the symptoms of stress are flooding into your mind, in this verse he's saying, one, pray, open the lines of communication. Two, do it with a humble, dependent spirit, acknowledging that you can't control that event. And you shouldn't try to, because then you'll begin to manipulate instead of minister. And then thirdly, say, God, in advance, before I know the outcome of this relationship, I thank you for the consequence either way. If we break up, praise God. I'll take that as your sovereign will, and I thank you for it. If we end up staying together and it eventually ends up into a, a blessed home life, praise God, I'll thank you for that too. Thank God in advance for both the down and the upside of your future contingency. And then this last word is requests. You see it there? Requests, different word altogether, and it means specific petition. It means specific petition. I love this. I love this. Listen to the flow. You're in all kinds of trouble. You come to prayer. You open the lines of communication. You do it with a truly genuine, humble heart. You thank him for the outcome in either event, but then he says, but I want to know what you like. Tell me specifically, how would you like it to end up? You know those passages about praying to our Heavenly Father, our Abba Father, and how would a, you know, when a, when a son asks a father for whatever it is, a loaf, he doesn't give him a stone. You're dealing with your great, awesome, gracious, compassionate, loving Heavenly Father, and there is room in the kingdom of God for you not only to thank Him for the up or the down, but to say in the middle of that, but if I had it my way, God, I'd like it to go this way. And be specific. He wants to hear. He wants to hear how you would like that future contingency to go. Because he loves you. And it's awfully good to know. He, he may not give you exactly what you want. But it sure is good to know at least he wants to hear it. Isn't it? He's not some obtuse, removed, uncaring, unthinking deity. He says when you're struggling and you're hurting, pray with a humble heart and thank me in advance. But then tell me how you'd like it. I'm happy to hear I'm happy to hear. Share your heart with me. Philippians 4, 1, rejoice in the Lord always. 2, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. 3, be anxious for nothing. How? Help me. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's an awesome verse. I want to bring your attention to, the, to one word in there. And it's the word guard. Will guard your hearts. When I was reading this, it turned out that studying this, it's a military term. It's a description of some men, you know, with weapons. And it's their job to guard something. But I was amazed. It's, they guard the city. It's their job to guard the city gate. What is interesting about this word is it's not the word used to describe the guys who would stand and, and make sure the bad people didn't get into the city. That's a different word. That's a different word for guard in the Greek. This word for guard describes the guys who are armed and who stand on the inside of the city and protect everybody who goes out. It's their job only to let certain things go out of the city. There's another group of guys whose job it is only to let certain things get into the city. Say, so what difference does that make? Well, think about this. Do you know what happens to people when they struggle from severe anxiety? They move into all types of weird behavior 
They begin to, uh, one example would be guys who have been in Vietnam, bless their hearts. And the stress and the anxiety was so severe, they suffer from what they call now post-traumatic stress syndrome. They can't get over the stress they dealt with, and they have uncontrollable behavior and uncontrollable fears and phobias. And so 600 of them, at least, in the article I read, are living up in the, in the tundra of Alaska, where it's isolated because they're afraid to be around people. Because they believe they're going to kill somebody if just the wrong thing happens. They'll just kill somebody. And so responsibly, they move to an isolated area because they can't recover from the stress. Extreme phobias, extreme fear of height, extreme fear of enclosure, claustrophobia. These are the byproducts of undealt with stress. You know what this verse is saying? Look at it again. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will stand watch at the city gate of your mind and your heart, and it will keep your faculties from leaving you, so that you can continue to be a productive individual in the kingdom of God. We say people who have gone too far in stress are losing their mind. This verse says, apply these principles to your life and the God of all peace and these principles will stand guard at the city gate of your mind and your heart. The Bible uses the word heart as the seat of everything. Your thinking, your choosing, your emotions. It'll stand guard. Verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure... Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, now let your mind dwell on these things. Now keep it in context. A lot of times youth pastors use this verse to shoot down the wrong kind of music and the wrong kind of movie and the wrong kind of this, and maybe there's an application for that somewhere. But in this context, I believe what it's saying is this. As you are faced with the future contingency, and you move your way through these principles, and you come now to verse 8, principle number 5, you must guard what you allow your mind to think. Limit the scope of what your mind is allowed to think about with respect to that future contingency. It's foolish to say, every time I think about that, I just get so nervous I can't fall asleep. So I'm just never going to think about that anymore. That is a foolish response. That future contingency deserves careful thought. It deserves planning. It deserves the counsel and wisdom of other people in your life who can give comment and wisdom on how to respond to that eventuality. You're supposed to think about it. What the Bible is saying, limit your thoughts about it to those things which are true and which are honorable and right and pure and lovely and of good repute and of excellence. What people do is with these future contingencies, they turn into huge dragons and they think about all the downsides and how it's going to go wrong. And they get depressed and they stop getting up in the morning. And they stop doing their homework. And they, they do all kinds of weird things. Because they allow their minds to entertain and to scheme and to develop all the negative possibilities there are with respect to that future contingency. And God it's so practically is saying, no, you've got to think about it. But I'm holding you accountable. I'm commanding you, I'm giving you this imperatival verb to only let your mind think about that future contingency with respect to the things that are true and right and good and honorable and et cetera, et cetera. Last one. Verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard 
and seen in me. Here's the verb, practice. Practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you. The word practice, as we've talked in the past, is a powerful word in the New Testament and it means the habitual pattern of your life. It's back to Wow Week and my little speech on the first John thing and the habitual pattern of your life and the graph that we throw up on the board and saying, is your life, sure it's got problems, but is your life going up towards righteousness in Christ or is the characteristic pattern or practice of your life going towards disobedience? What Paul is saying, look at it again in verse 9, everything that you have learned from me and received from me and heard and seen in me, that's everything they know about the Bible, basically. That's all they know about the New Testament, remember? They don't have the New Testament. They've got the Old Testament, but they don't have the New. The only new revelation they've got from God has come from the person of Paul. And so what he is saying to them is, do everything I've taught you. And what he's saying to you is follow the Word of God as a practice of life. Make the habitual pattern of your life in every area, not just with respect to this one future contingency, but in every area, practice the law of God. In other words, this is the foundation of everything that's gone before it. If you're living a life of disobedience as a practice, if you're in a real slope period in your life and you're turned your heart from God and, and you're backing up on him and your life's starting to fall apart. And this one particular area you say, man, this is causing me a lot of anxiety. I'm going to rejoice and I'm going to let my forbearing spirit be known and I'm not going to be anxious about it and I'm going to pray and you, know, on, and you do this little list of things in this one little area, but the rest of your life is in complete disobedience to the will of God. I don't think it's going to help much. I had a student I was working with here about five years ago and I'll never forget her as I think as long as I live. She had come from a Christian home. In fact, her dad was a pastor. And she had begun to rebel from her parents, a familiar theme in my life, at about 13 or 14 years of age. And because her dad was a pastor, she did it all in incognito. She did it behind the scenes. She did it in ways that few people would know about. And so she still maintained this masquerade as a Christian kid around church and her parents' friends. But when she was with her close friends, she was completely out of control, involved in all kinds of sinful, horrible things. And she finally ended up here at the Master's College under duress by her parents because they were hoping we could fix all the problems. And she began to repeat that cycle here. And eventually some good friends at the college who loved her found out about it and began to confront her. And she didn't repent. And so eventually I had to get involved. And we worked with her literally for almost an entire year in the way that you know we want to work with students towards restoration. And nothing would change. And we finally got to the end of the year and I asked her to leave. And she didn't like me very much, needless to say. And I can understand that. But I'll never forget it. She had an ulcer. She, we had to delay her departure from the school because she just got out of the hospital with her ulcer. 18, 19-year-old young gal with an ulcer bad enough to go to the hospital for. And if you have one of those, I'm not making fun of you. I sympathize with you. But she finally got back on campus, and she'd been up at the mailroom, and she was coming back down, and I was coming out of Rutherford, and I saw her coming a ways off, and I just stood there because I was groping for some way to say, I really do care about you, and I really wish this wasn't happening. And she came up to me, and I called her by her name, and I said, you know, I'm sorry about all this. If there's any way we could change this, I'd love to. Meaning, give me some room, you know. Come our way a little bit. 
And she just looked at me just as cold as ice and walked on. What you've got in this young lady, and I don't know, God bless her wherever she is, and I hope that good things are happening in her life. But you've got a characteristic pattern of disobedience to the law of God. And as a result, her life was in an absolute shambles, and she had an ulcer so bad she had to go to the hospital. Pretty significant sign of anxiety and stress. Let me show you a couple more things about this passage, and I'll close in prayer, and then Dave Beto can come up and give announcements. Notice in verse 4, it's coupled with uh, an absolute. The imperative comes with an absolute. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Not sometimes. Always. Same thing is true in verse 5. Let your forbearing spirit be known to some men, all men. Verse 6. Be anxious for just a few things. Be anxious. Now here's another absolute. Be anxious for nothing. Verse 8 limits absolutely what you're allowed to think on. Dwell, it could say, only on these things. Let me give you some encouragement here. No matter what you're going through, no matter how significant the stress or the future contingency or the reality in your life is, these principles can help because they're not limited. Rejoice always, forbearing spirit to all men, anxious for nothing. What God gives us today in these principles will apply to your situation no matter how severe it may be. It may be much worse than mine. Last thing. Second to last thing. I don't want you to think that if you can now go apply these six principles that hipto facto, by tomorrow, you'll be out of all your anxiety. God is not into magic formulas. God is not into special little tricks. These are principles to which you can commit your entire life. And if you're faithful to them and if you work on them, as you grow and mature, you'll have less anxiety then than you do now. And I would be a living testimony to you to that. I've been studying this passage for 12 years. And I go back to it with regularity saying, God, teach me to live this stuff. It's not a magic formula and it doesn't hipto facto miraculously Danny Coram change your life. So don't go out of here expecting that from your God. He's not going to do that. What you have from the Word of God are some helpful, true, reliable practices and principles that you can bank your entire life on. But don't now say, okay, great, I'll try them tonight, and by tomorrow I better feel great. You struggle with these. You fight with these. You memorize these. You learn from other people about these. And with time, you'll begin to see a level of maturity in your life that you didn't previously have. Last thing, three really practical helps along this line. Number one, get a lot of physical exercise. If you're not working out or doing something, running or jogging or playing hoops or doing something, between now and the end of the break, you need to start today. Even if it's only 20 minutes, the best thing would be not to go out and kill yourself. Go something nice and easy, but work into it and do it every day, every other day. Three, four, five times a week, get on a program between now and the last test you have to take. I guarantee you it will help. I guarantee you. Number two, under practical helps, make sure you have some time in your schedule just for you. Just for you. Not helping somebody else. Not going over there. 
work some things into your weekly schedule that are just what you'd like to do. A little respite there. Don't take that a principle and blow it out of perspective or you'll do nothing but help yourself. Last thing, manage your time wisely. Manage your time wisely. You have a lot of things to do between now and your last final, friend. You got a lot to do. And it's not going to get done by accident. It's going to get done because you somehow get a list of everything that's got to get done and then you start planning how you're going to have it happen. And you're going to rise to the occasion and you're going to succeed and you're going to win, but you're going to win because you've made a commitment to manage your time and stay on track. It wouldn't hurt to have a friend who you're doing the same thing with. A little accountability, kind of a motivational pep talk type deal. Okay? I'm happy to report that God has given me a new ministry. And as sorry as I am to leave the Master's College, uh, last weekend, Heidi and I and my entire family, they flew us back to a place called Fort Wayne, Indiana, a place I said, like I promised God I'd never leave California and the beautiful weather that we're going to enjoy here in a few minutes. Promise God, never leave it, God, never, never, never. I'm leaving it, May 12th. But this church is unbelievable. It's called Blackhawk Baptist Church. And it was, had its first pastor about 19 years ago. His name is David Jeremiah. He's the pastor down there at Scott Memorial and the president of Christian Heritage. And then another guy came along out of their church who was a youth pastor, a guy named Rick Hawks. And he did a phenomenal job for seven years. But last year he felt God calling him to run or minister in politics, so he ran for Congress, of all things. And he lost, but he still believes God would have him serve in politics, and so for the last year they've been looking for a pastor. Um, and remember, I talked to you a little while ago up front there, and I said, I'm looking for a place where I can preach, build men, and raise my family. And this is everything I could have ever hoped for. It is awesome. It's a big, strong, vibrant, aggressive church. They have an elder board there that's very supportive. They have a, the, the feeling of the people is energetic and they're excited about their church and they want me to come and preach. They've only heard me twice, I know. They'll get, that'll get old in a hurry, but that's what they want now. And uh, they have, with this church, they have a uh, school called Blackhawk Christian School. And I haven't been a real big advocate of like private Christian junior high and high schools because sometimes the attitude goes sour in there and you know it kind of goes bad. Maybe you came from one of those. Well, this one really seems to be a lot different. There's a real enthusiasm and excitement. It's a little bit like the Master's College, I mean, as far as attitude is concerned. Students are excited about their school, and they're glad they're there, and there's a good relationship between parent and staff and all. So it seems to absolutely be everything we could hope for. It's certainly more than we deserve. Um, they extended a call to us to come. 98% of that church voted yes. You see, they're deceived, right? The Holy Spirit can do these things. <laughs> And so we accepted their call, and uh, we've worked it out to where we can finish up the year here with you guys, be here for graduation, and then we should fly out the day after, which I think is May 12th or May 13th. So I want to thank you very much for your prayers. Thank you for your support, uh, and we'll finish the year together, all right?